friends, and welcome to The Block, the Building, Learning, and Organizational Culture podcast. I'm your host, Heidi Kirby, and on today's episode, I talk to my friend, Dr. Nicole papiano Laguerra about how being an English major has shaped our L&D career, and also about working and learning with others. There's plenty of good stuff in here, and you're not going to want to miss it. Hey, Nicole, how's it going? Hi, Heidi. It's so nice to see you. It's it's going good. It's going good. How's it going over there? It's going. It's going. Just, Fast, you know, right? <laughs> <laughs> trying to survive the last bit of winter. But, yeah. I feel that in my wearing of the peace bones as I sit yes. here in a coat. <laughs> so let's jump right in. Why don't you tell me a little bit about you, um, how you kind of got into the world of L&D, what you're doing now, and anything fun you want to share. Sure. So um, if you're listening and you don't know me, which is very possible, my name is Nicole Papiano-Lugara. I am the founder of Your Instructional Designer, which is a learning and people development agency. And we're focused on serving startup and growing organizations with digital social learning solutions. And I would only say that to everybody here because you're in the L&D field. I would pitch that very differently if I were not, because <laughs> it probably would make sense to nobody. Um so we're, we are a small agency, and um, that's definitely not where my career started. I started um, my professional life in academia. I thought I wanted to be an English professor when I grew up, and I went and pursued my PhD in English and you know did actually adjunct for a while. I worked in writing centers for many years, and while they gave me a really strong foundation, um, you know, I just... I want. I was almost thirty. I wanted financial independence. I wanted something a little more. Kind of while I waited to find my what I thought was going to be my tenure track position, and um, so I did what I said I would never do, and I looked into corporate training. Um, I found this post for an instructional designer. I had no idea what one was, and I was like, oh, those are all the things I like to do. You know, I love designing my online classes. I love working with subject matter experts and, like, talking to other uh, experts in the field, and writing scripts sounded really fun, and it was an adaptive learning platform. So I was like, hey, that's kind of different. So, yeah, you know, that job was actually across the country, and so I ended up moving from New Jersey to uh, Hollywood, California was where the job was. And that was my introduction to corporate training. So I went from working on like English projects to working on teaching pilots how to fly A320, uh, you know, planes. <laughs> um, and then somewhere in the, the shuffle, you know, like many people, my organization, we were doing really well. You know, at, at, by the end of my time there, I was managing a team of about 15 people. We were, had won branded Hall Awards multiple times. We were winning lots of accolades, but, you know, our sales pipeline wasn't particularly great. And so um, they laid off the entire content team. They kept three people. They became a SaaS company. And I found myself freelancing. And then eventually freelancing became really great. Um, and I had people who I was outsourcing to, which is the very long route to how uh, your instructional designer became an agency. <laughs> nice. I love it, though, because I have a similar, <laughs> similar trajectory, like, Man, looking for that tenure track job and 
thinking that someday I won't be doing this adjunct. I did the adjunct shuffle where I was teaching at like four or five different colleges. Three. Three. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. My max, I think, was five in one semester. Yeah. And it was like a class at each one, too. You know what I mean? So it was brutal. Like driving all over the Tri-County area. Yeah. It's just a mess. And you make like minimum wage. People don't realize that. I was I always joke that I paid them for me to teach because by the time I went over like the George Washington Bridge, which is like fifteen dollars, mm-hmm. I took the tunnels, I took you know gas tolls because I live in New Jersey where you have to pay to drive on the roads. So it was like I don't think I made any money. I was I was I ended up moving back in with my parents at like yeah. twenty five to twenty. I guess it had to be like a year twenty four to twenty five. Maybe like I didn't want to be there anymore. You know I I wanted yeah. something more for myself and I got the itch (laughs) yeah well that and you know like we live where it's unfortunately like health insurance is tied to full-time job opportunities so adjuncting is also very bad for that (laughs) too like yeah yeah it was rough um and also I found you know I think I could have had the tenure tracker role but I just didn't like publishing, and I still fight it as yes. an doing. You know, like I like <laughs> blogging, but for whatever reason, the pressure to do something that I don't want to do makes me not want to do it even more. And so, like, I just wanted to focus on my students, and I couldn't do that in the way that I wanted to. For sure, yeah, yeah. And what I found is, like, in the Cleveland area, there was so little tenure track to begin with. There's not like a ton of colleges here, so like, and they would always. Like, I would always apply for the jobs, and then they'd always end up going to, like, I've, I've joked about this before, like, some really artsy hipster guy from Colorado who did, like, a writer's retreat in the mountains or, you know, like, had, like, this really sexy, hip resume, <laughs> yes. not, like, the hometown girl from Cleveland, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Working where you live, if you want a tenure track role, is nearly impossible, and I wasn't going to move out of what you know at the time for me was like New York New Jersey metro area to go to you know like a rural area where I didn't feel like I had the culture I love about (laughs) where I live yeah and also to move like even tenure track professors don't make that much so to move across the country for something like that I don't know that I could have been convinced back in the day (laughs) also I feel like I just want to repeat that like there's nothing wrong with living in rural areas I think they're awesome Oh, yeah. I just know myself, I like a little bit of the, a little bit of the city shuffle. Like, I also don't want to live in yeah. Manhattan, you know? So I just sure. want to make sure no one knows I'm, I'm giving them the slight. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I couldn't live in a more suburban area if I tried, um, but drive 30 minutes east or south and we're in cornfields. So I feel that. So I want to talk today about something I get asked about a lot that I feel like you would have some good answers and best practices for, but I'm always getting asked questions about like, how can we work better with our subject matter experts and stakeholders? Because they're like, I I always say that they're like, um, like the little siblings in L and D like we're allowed to make fun of them, but if somebody else talks trash on them, we're like, no, shut it down, right? Like, <laughs> and so we piece. have like this love hate relationship with them. But I'd love to hear just like some of your 
experience with like difficult SMEs or stakeholders and some of like the best practices you've learned over time about communicating with and having reviews, successful reviews with, like wherever you want to start? Sure. Yeah, it's a big topic. And I think it's one of the things that if you are an instructional designer, it's like the thing that kind of pushes you to the next level or kind of, or holds you back, quite frankly, is being able mm-hmm. to build those relationships and work successfully, even when people aren't necessarily the most collaboratively spirited, um, if yeah. you will. I'm pretty, I would say we're lucky in that, you know, most of the time people are, but um, across the board, SMEs don't have time, right? Like I'm, I don't know if I've ever met an SME that had the appropriate time carved out to be able to work on a training project outside of their normal job. So I'm just going to preface it by saying that. But I think the number one strategy that helps, there's a few, but we'll start with that, is just um, acknowledging that your job is, is to like help them help themselves, if you will. And so if you come to it with a place of genuinely wanting to help them and genuinely wanting to like meet the goal that you're both there to meet, things go much more smoothly. Um, And part of that, I mean, it looks like active listening, right? Like really hearing what they have to say. It looks like communicating about communication. So how do you like to talk? Do you prefer that I send you um, a draft with questions in the comments? Or do you prefer that I give you a phone call once a week? Do you prefer I email you every time there's something small? Or do you want me to hold it for Tuesday at 6pm? You know, some of the miscommunication I think that happens between IDs and SMEs comes from just the ID maybe likes to email things because they're more of a independent worker and the SME is used to being a frontline worker who's like on the phone or whatever, you know, some, some things like that. Um, just a difference of communication. And sometimes it becomes from assumptions. So I would say the other piece of the puzzle is like, don't assume the worst of people, uh, even if they're not like getting reviews back to you and things like that, recognize that it's almost never personal. And You know, it's usually because they're being called away or they're being told this is a priority, but also something else is a priority. And so they're they're kind of, you know, between a rock and a hard place. Um, Recognize that even when they are. I hate to use the word aggressive, but you do every once in a while get someone who gets like flustered or very passionate or heated about, you know, Mm -hmm. their perspective. Like just recognize that it's a lot of pressure on them, too, and they want to produce something great and then try to, you know, de-escalate. I would say is a piece of that puzzle and just try to hear their perspective and pick up what's important. Um, I think the flip side of that is we are kind of in our field, natural helpers. Mm-hmm. So you don't want to just like be the doormat either. You do come with expertise and you do come with a perspective and hopefully you've done your homework and figured out what the big goal of the training is and the organization's goal and how they want to position themselves in the market so that, you know, you can facilitate those conversations to keep everybody on track and so if you find your SME going way off track or if you find them giving you answers that aren't giving you what you need you don't just step back and say oh I'm active listening no no like you still have to keep them on track you have to guide them through the conversation you have to be willing to say you know uh tell me more about that I'm not sure if I quite agree and then you have to be willing to like you know, come in prepared and make the case for what you think it is would be better, right? So evidence is important um, when it is better. And so it's not, you know, you don't want to trample on them. You don't want to just come in and say, I'm the expert, like, this is how we're going to do it. But you have to balance that with, you know, listening and 
than defending when it makes sense to defend. You know, it's funny because we spent the whole first few minutes talking about like our experience as English professors. And I think that some of these skills come from that, right? Like (laughs) I remember when I first started teaching being horribly personally offended that my students would make comments about like not wanting to be in class or wanting to get out early or you know, wanting to skip class or have class canceled, right? And I took it so very personally at first. And I had to really like sit down and say like, Heidi, remember when you were in college, like even your favorite professors, you would have been overjoyed at two extra hours asleep in your dorm room, (laughs) you know? And I think it's the same thing. Like, don't take it personally. And also like the, um, like assuming good intentions, as well right like and realizing that people have stuff going on that has nothing to do with you right Mm -hmm. I think that there's there's a lot of that that comes from like the classroom as well yeah absolutely and the other thing you know when you start those first days with your students um making them willing to work with you is like a trust building exercise right and it's the same thing with your SME like they're coming in blind. They don't know you. In my case, I'm an external vendor. So there's probably some, there's either excitement that I'm there or there is already like a, a little bit of an anger and a resentment that the people who are telling you things internally are not being listened to. And now you're hiring this expert to probably tell you what your team's already telling you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like think about how you can build that trust. Um, you know, I think that's a piece of the puzzle too that we learn as teachers. Yeah, yeah. I remember coming into one of my classrooms the first day, and gosh, I was early 20s, mid-20s, right? So just, like, pretty, quite young. And it was, um, like, a school in, like, Cleveland proper. So there was a lot of non-traditional students. It wasn't, like, a university or, or like, a four-year college. It was very much, like, um, community college in the city. So there was, oh gosh, more than half the class was older than me. And I had to come in that first day and say, like, hey, listen, I understand that when it comes to life, everyone here probably knows more than me. Mm -hmm. But, like, when it comes to writing in English, like, that's my area. And that's where I'm here to help you get better. Like, I'm not here to teach you about life. I'm not here to teach you about the career you're pursuing. Like, that is none of my business. The only thing I know about is writing and English comp. And that's what we're going to do here. So... I think that's also the magic ticket for SMEs, right? Like on day one, it's, it's about educating them. So this is how I help because they probably have no idea what an instructional designer is. Like I've worked with very few SMEs who've actually worked with an ID before. And um, here's what I believe about you. And this is how when we come together, it makes magic happen. Yeah, absolutely. And it really is like in my dissertation research, the number one thing that I found made or, made or broke a project was that successful collaboration with SMEs and stakeholders. Like, that was the number one thing that everyone talked about. And oddly enough, in two totally separate situations, two different instructional designers told me the exact same story, which was, like, a cool but strange research anomaly, right? That they had, like, that initial intake meeting with a SME or a stakeholder where they were just, like, asking a bunch of questions to get to the heart of the project, but the SME like took it defensively and very Mm -hmm. quickly got on the defensive because 
they were asking things to try and figure out what the what the purpose was, what the goal was. Because initially, the it had been like, we need a course on X, right? They'd gotten yes. the pizza order, as I like to call it. And so they were, like, asking questions. But I don't know if they maybe didn't preface those questions enough or that they didn't warn the – like, I'm going to ask a bunch of questions as if I know nothing. Yes. Humor me, you know, that kind of thing. But in both cases, the – Smee got defensive during the meeting and then after the meeting asked for the ID to be taken off that project. And yeah. So, I mean, how would you handle that type of situation? Have you seen something like that? How would you kind of smooth over that relationship? Yeah. Well, I guess uh, we're we're assuming they did not get taken off the project and it had to go from there. Right. That's hard. Um, I think you just, you lean in, right? Like you go to, to, I would say like, let's talk about what happened. I you know my intention was certainly not to um, challenge you, but I'm really just trying to understand the heart of the problem. And, you know, this is kind of my process, you know, it's, it's not meant to say that like, you don't know what you're doing or anything like that. And hopefully come to an understanding about what it is we do next. And, and maybe I, you do just need to backtrack and do that client education piece, right? This is how IDs work with SMEs. This is our typical process. This is why why I'm asking these kinds of questions. And um, it sounds to me like maybe one of the questions that is missing from that intake is like, what's at risk if this project fails? Because mm-hmm. if you say that and um, you haven't been clear about defining the purpose, I think it becomes very obvious why you're asking this line of questioning, right? Like if we don't get this right, um, we're going to lose $300,000 in productivity this year. I don't know if that's it. Right. So then the SME doesn't, isn't offensive anymore. They're like, Oh, Oh, like we're answering these with a purpose. But if you're just saying like, what's the goal, what's the learning objectives, are you sure students don't want to do that? And I'm not saying these people ask like that, of but I, I have seen yeah. it. I have seen it yeah. in practice also. Um, or if it doesn't feel like you're actually listening and you're just reading off a script that can also cause that. So mm-hmm. anyway, that's a very long-winded answer, but really, you just need to backtrack. I think you need to do a little customer service, um, you know, and uh, get everybody on the same page again. Yeah, I mean, there's so many successful communication skills that are required. It's really, mm-hmm. I think it's underestimated a lot. I think, Highly. like, the whole writing communication um piece of instructional design often gets overlooked because people just assume, right, that if you're 30, 35 in the corporate world in a career, that you are already a decent writer and a great communicator. And it's not always the case. Oh, that's 0% the case. Yeah. I mean, not 0%, but you know what I mean? It's it's definitely yeah. not. Um, a lot of people struggle to write it's right well but then it's also a genre in and of itself right like writing for instructional design in all the different ways we write all the different ways we structure it's it's a learned skill um just because you can write a college essay or just because you can write an email pitch to a client doesn't mean you can structure a curriculum or put together content for an activity or write for a virtual reality experience like they're different skills yeah absolutely yeah and i think too that Figuring out what those learning objectives are and then continuously reminding the SMEs and stakeholders that those are the learning objectives. I think that can really help keep the SMEs out of the weeds sometimes because they don't think like we think, right? 
they don't bring it back to the outcomes. They don't bring it back to the learning objectives. And I think it's our responsibility to keep reminding them of that because SMEs love to live in the weeds. Like they (laughs) know everything about everything. And when you're like, oh no, I only want this part. Like they malfunction, right? Like I've seen it happen. They're like, <laughs> error, error. I don't know how to yeah, give you everything is need anything to know. less. Yeah. Need to know. They like, need everything. I remember being handed like <laughs> four inch thick binders of PowerPoint presentations from a SME mm-hmm. once. I was like, I don't want these. <laughs> Please don't give me these. But like, yeah. And so I think reminding, like starting every meeting with like, hey, here are the learning objectives for this project again. Or, you know, before they do a review, reminder, here are all all the learning objectives. Make sure that everything in here, in this script, in this storyboard, whatever, aligns with those still. Yeah, yeah. I like to tell, so whether it's like the stakeholders or the SMEs, there's like three pieces of data I use. I use, and I say I, I use it loosely because I know that people um, will kind of say, well, that's not quite accurate, but I'll explain why I do this. So um, the first one I like to call on is there, depending on what research you look at, uh, there's statistics saying that 40 to 80% of corporate training has developed is scrap learning. So essentially you're wasting 40 to 80% of the efforts you put into training people. And so, you know, first and foremost, I'm always like, so what is it that's actually a priority here? Because we want to make sure whatever we're building doesn't go in the scrap pile. So that's the first thing I like to tell people and usually get them to listen. Um, the second one is I like to leverage Ebbinghaus's forgetting curve. And I'll say, you know, you forget up to what, 95% of what you learn within X days. Um, And I know that that's different depending on the context in which you apply it. And that's kind of what I explain, right? So we're here to design it to make sure the really important stuff doesn't get forgotten. I mean, think about any training experience you've ever been through. Odds are you don't remember verbatim what the trainer said, but you probably have pulled out three or four nuggets that you apply to your daily work. And then the last one isn't really a statistic as much as I just say, like, if you highlight the whole page, nothing is highlighted. And that's going to be the same experience for your learner. So we need to come down and figure out, like, what actually needs to be highlighted. And usually between those three um, pieces of information, you can kind of get them to be more open to listening and cutting or being willing to work with you to figure out what's actually need to know um, and what's good to know. Or, you know, release the reins a little bit so you can make that assessment on your own. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think I read, gosh, I'm not going to be able to remember the specific numbers, of course, but I was just reading something where someone was like, we take our content and like whatever the first draft is, we force ourselves to cut like 20 to 30%, at least just like word count, right? Like not even just content wise, but even just looking at how we word things and can we say something with more brevity can we say it more concisely um you know things like that are we being repetitive in certain places so i think those are really good tips yeah 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 that that those would be my definitely my like top tips if you are new to working with smes or you feel like you're not kind of getting what you need out of them Then the last thing I guess I would say for those difficult SMEs is like tangible work. So conversations are really important. You know, I think journalists or people with journalism backgrounds make great ideas for that reason because they can kind of pull the information out. 
But I do think there's like a dearth of like hands-on experience. Like, okay, let's take the post-its and map out the process on the wall. Or I actually almost never meet my people face to face. So let's use Miro today. Sure. Miro, yeah. And yeah, let's let's uh, chart it out. Or you know, let's do something that's like a physical activity. Or let me observe you in action. You know, throw on your webcam. Let me see what you're doing here. And so you, you know, sometimes if they can't articulate what it is they want to say, maybe they're not good communicators, right? Then um, don't be afraid to like ask for what you need. That's a really important piece of the puzzle. Ask for that data, ask for that information. Yes. Oh, that's such a good point that maybe they're not great communicators because especially I've, I find, right? Like this is pretty stereotypical, but I find that a lot of the people who are working like in super technical fields, like a lot of the SMEs that I worked with in NASA and in tech are that very like stereotypical if they're like a developer or a scientist or something that they're, they tend towards antisocial and, but that is what allows them to become a SME, right? Cause they can yeah. get into that deep work zone and they do their thing and they come to work and they get into deep work and they just do. And they're not used to having to explain that process to others. No, no. They, they probably can't even remember what it's like to be someone who doesn't know these five steps. I mean, think about us. Like sometimes I have to remember with like my new hires. I'm like, oh, yeah, like that took me probably two years to get. And because nobody explained it to me, like I need to explain yeah. it to them and I need to break it down. Yeah, it's hard to zoom yourself out to a beginner. But I think that that's where our expertise as instructional designers and not in the actual subject matter is helpful. And I hear a lot of people say like, well, don't I need to know the subject matter to be able to design and develop? And I'm always like, no, of course not. Like, you know, that's what the SME is for. And It actually helps if you don't know a ton about it because then you're able to ask those questions that a beginner would ask and you're able to say, like, would I really need to know this? And you're able to get the subject matter expert to kind of look at things a little bit differently. I would agree. I think it can be a huge advantage actually not understanding it. And so in those cases, I think your first order of business is, like, just learn their language, you know? So spend some time maybe, like, looking at industry websites like associations you know if you were going to get an L&D maybe spend some time on the ATD website or something like that but like the content content yeah like that's that's a process of checks and balances right you're you're figuring out the mental models and they're telling you whether it's accurate or not yeah absolutely so I want to talk a little bit about not just working with others, but also learning with others. Yeah, so you've been it. doing a lot <laughs> on social learning this year. Tell yeah. me a little bit about that and how it kind of, how you got into that. Because I know that you were talking about other stuff last year. I was. And didn't you say you're like a skeptic of social learning at one point too? Oh, no, that is my Rocio. Um, I call her my Rocio. That's oh, her yes, 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 yes. Okay. Rocio, our project manager. Um, well, I'll take us through the whole story. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think it'll make more sense. So, yes, I was doing other things. So last year was the first year I officially owned the agency title um, and, you know, brought on staff and things like that. And so we were kind of doing it all. Um, we were doing e-learning, blended learning. We were doing 
video. We were doing virtual instructor-led training. We were doing mobile develop, like just everything under the sun. I really sold needs analysis because I do believe strongly that it's just not done um, as well as it should be sure. a lot of the time or that people just don't feel as confident in their needs analysis skills or maybe some of the stuff we talked about before, you know, like getting the buy-in, mm-hmm. all of that. So I had focused a lot of my energy and attention there. And um, I just can't, you know, I wasn't happy. I got to be honest. Like, I also had my first kid. And so we couldn't find a babysitter last year. So here I am, new mom, like trying to figure that out. I'm juggling. I, you know, having my kid with me, trying to breastfeed, quite honestly, like all of the things. And I'm trying to then talk to all of these different clients and create all of these different processes for every single different kind of like learning experience under the sun. And I'm getting sucked into a lot of time because I'm doing these really thorough needs analysis and we're actually doing one right now. So they're still happening. Um, and it, it was just too much and I wasn't happy. I was very burnt out. Um, and I just didn't feel like I could scale the business. Like everything was bespoke and custom and yeah, we had a process for, you know, intake or whatever, but then everything became like, well, who can I hire to do this? This is like a different skill set than the, these four people that we work with all the time. And this is this. So towards the end of the year, I really sat down and did some like soul searching and some goal planning and to think about the projects that we had that I actually enjoyed working on. And one of our, uh, you know, favorite projects was for this consulting organization that we still work with and we set up their social learning network. And, you know, I just found myself really loving all of the social stuff we were doing. So like the digital cohorts we were building, the communities we were building sometimes as part of other things, you know, cause we had blended learning programs, but I was like, this is what I feel like actually works. And me personally, you know, I had taken lots of self-paced learning or I say taken lightly because I would tune in for five minutes and then never yes. log in again. And I'm like, if I'm a PhD who enjoys learning, who literally went to school for 14 years extra for funsies after high school, mm-hmm. and I don't like this experience, then I know that most of the learners out there don't either. Like, I, I know I'm not every learner, but I, I just know. I Like, I felt yeah. it intuitively. So, you know, I, I liked being on social media and I saw opportunities for learning in ways that made more sense. Um, I saw like the value of communicating, especially in these post-pandemic times where we had seen what happens when people just feel isolated and disconnected and all the anxiety and depression that comes with that. And I saw how much more effective it was when like people were having conversations and the important things that they were learning about were staying top of mind. Mm-hmm. So we made the shift. Um, I decided to rip down the website. We started talking about internally how we could package our social learning experiences and uh, do a needs analysis that told us either you were a good fit for one of these or that we weren't going to be a good fit for you and we go, you know, we recommend whoever we recommend in our sphere or whatever we would recommend you do next. And that's kind of where we landed. Love it. I love it. So Rocio, who is great, by the way. This is great, yes. So Rocio um, was our intern, and she told me at the same time that I had come to the conclusion that I really needed a project manager, that she didn't want to do learning design, that she was pursuing an MBA, and she wanted to manage learning projects. And I was like, that's great. Can I hire you? <laughs> Love it. Yeah, and so she came on, and we have our own social learning network at Your Instructional Designer. Um, we use Workplace by Meta, just like one of the tools we recommend for our clients. And so... Rocio was not sold. Rocio just 
she told me, you know, I don't want to manage anything with our community Facebook group. I don't use Facebook. I don't like social media. It's not for me. And uh, we had Slack. So I had challenged her to find, you know, a better tool. And we just, she was like, let's just use Slack. And I was like, yeah, but nobody really likes it. Um, it's not really doing what we need to do. And it's very expensive. It's like $9 mm-hmm. per person and as a small business per month, you know. So like with all of our freelancers and stuff, I was like, as a small business, I'm not getting the value for the $9 per user per month. So anyway, lo and behold, um, I put Rocio in it. And she's like, I love Workplace Now. Um, so much so that she was willing to write a blog post about going from being a skeptic to an evangelist, I would say. She um, found a lot of value in you know, kind of how we structure these collaborative work learning spaces. Yeah. So what have you learned from, you know, kind of starting this and taking it on about social learning that surprised you? Um, I think it surprised me how many people don't use it. Mm. That's definitely one of the big ones. Like how many people think that now that we're remote, somehow opportunities to learn together no longer exist or can only exist in like a Zoom meeting. So that that was one of the big ones. It's actually very, this is still a challenge for me. It's very difficult for me to communicate (laughs) to clients um, what I'm pitching them because there's still, a lot of people are still coming along to like self-paced e-learning. So, you know, finding the right language for me. So being an SME, right, in my, it's hard for you sometimes to communicate that. So that has been kind of surprising. Just finding how, how difficult it has been for me to make this complex thing simple. Um, and I think there's a a little bit of proof of concept, right? Just for me, one of the fun parts, I don't know if this is like a revelation, but, um, that client that I was talking about, we're still on their social learning network. They have us as like a user, so I can kind of lurk. It's interesting to see, but like, you know, we saw the proof of concept work right away. Um, and I still see things come up. Like they did like a 12, 12 weeks of competencies campaign and they're doing uh, lunch and learns that they're like live streaming and they're tagging things and they're doing polls and they're doing silly, like team connecting activities. Like, you know, what's your favorite book? So they've taken the tools we've given them and they really have used um, that. And so we've continued to partner with them and it's just been really fun. Yeah, I think one of the big things that I've seen just with companies that try that I've worked at that have tried to do social learning that they miss is like they don't build in the time for people to be social. Yeah, <laughs> and it's yeah. like it's really hard to fight against that because what you're a lot of times the things that are best learned in social learning are the things that take a long time to do, change, digest, reflect on, whatever. And if you're not giving your people enough time to do that and to to have those conversations and to just be social, (laughs) then it's really not going to be effective, you know? Yeah, and I would add to that, um, if your culture is fear-based and, like, you don't actually want people to talk... It doesn't work, right? If you're going to monitor everything they say and reprimand them for having differences of opinions. Yes. I remember that I worked at a place where they got a new LMS that was based on the HRIS system, which, first of all, was, like, pretty terrible. Pretty terrible use case for buying an LMS. (laughs) Yes. Um, And 
the LMS was designed to be very social. It like had some very like Facebook like features where you could like like a course or recommend it to a friend or tag someone in the comments that you thought should take the course. And um, I remember the first thing they asked was like, can we get this functionality turned off? And we were like, why? And um, there was also like user generated content, right? Right, right. Anybody at the org could upload something that they thought was helpful or like, you know, and it's all, it's all monitored really. But like, they're like, can we turn that off? And we're like, why would you want to turn that off? And they why were afraid that like, that system then? right, exactly. <laughs> like you're, why one that doesn't do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like pay less money for something that doesn't have it. But they, um, they were afraid that people would upload inappropriate videos. Then why are you hiring them? Right. And also <laughs> like, who, I don't, I just can't. Like, who in, is taking time out of their day when they're... And they it, they were worried about, like, the, the like, more blue collar, the people who were working in the warehouses of and course, the people that were course. working in the, you know, assembly lines and stuff. And I'm like, who of these people who are probably a little underpaid as it is um, want to just, like, are thinking, hmm... For funsies today, I'm going to upload an inappropriate video to my work thing. And honestly, here's my other piece of this. If they do, what is the big deal? You take it down. You have a conversation with that person. Maybe you ban their access if you need to. But why does the whole company and your entire Mm. learning culture need to hinge on the what if of one person potentially acting out of turn? And so I couldn't agree more. <laughs> it's yeah. Like, and the one person potentially, like not even. Not even that, you know. Yeah. And if you know that happened before, then why do you, why have you hired them? Like, why haven't you done some kind of performance improvement plan? Like why, I don't know if they're misbehaving in that way online where everybody in the organization can see it. Odds are they're doing it with your other staff or your clients so like there's a whole other layer of conversations there and as an external provider i'm happy to have them but i know it can be a little challenging if you're internal and there's politics involved for sure for sure yeah because it was very much like well but you guys work in corporate you don't understand what the culture is like and what it's like out in the field you know and it's like Yes, but we understand human beings and people aren't going to work looking to upload inappropriate videos and get fired from their job. Like, it's just not, that's not a normal thing. It's also like a learning management system. Odds are, again, these these are assumptions, right? But like, odds are your team is too busy. Like, if let's say factory workers, they're too busy to post nonsense on your company page. They're going to post it on Facebook where they talk bad about you, maybe. Right, or in their group text. Yeah, Right, right. So, like, when we're actually doing social learning, one of the things I highly advocate and I ask about during kickoff meetings is who are your your change champions and who are your internal influencers? Because you're going to need those people to push the change. You're going to need those people to develop content. You're going to need those people to moderate. That's not going to be everyone. I can tell you right now, like, everybody's not going to want to participate in that way. And it's definitely going to be the same if you have, you know, more of a a blue-collar or frontline worker, you know, population. You're going to have maybe a handful who are going to be excited about the idea of content creation. And you can work with them and train them and make sure they're ready to, like, you know, somewhat play with your brand voice and- yeah and if they are willing to do that they're usually looking for like a way up right they're yes, usually yeah. looking to work their way up 
And what better person to have on your leadership team than somebody who's actually done the job? Like And cares and cares, right? Cares yes. about the work so much they want to contribute. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and the other thing too is that like the change champions are never who the executives think they are. Like executives think of like directors and VPs and it's like and I, I encountered this in my own work, like throughout the years. Like, I would always identify, it's like, no, there's usually, like, one person in each department who's, like, been there for forever. A little <laughs> bit, like, grizzled, like, the grizzled veteran, right? Like, who is, like, a little rough around the edges, but super helpful and just, like, a teddy bear underneath. That's so just, like... excited to change. So excited. Yes. <laughs> and, like, yeah. they're the ones that everybody... Like, when everybody has a problem or a process question, they go ask that person. And, like, that's the person that you need to get on board because if they're on board, when the people go ask them, like, oh, did you hear about this new thing? Did you see this new thing? They're going to be like, oh, yeah, like, let's do it. Like, you know, I'm I'm on board, whatever. But you have to find those people. And those people are not in like the upper echelons of the company very rarely. And it's always good to get some of those people as change champions. Cause like good change has to come from the top down as well. Yeah. You need buy-in. But like, don't forget about the people doing the work who are your, your biggest allies. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think about it that way too. They definitely don't have to be in leadership. And I think the only differentiator like I try to make, because I think clients don't always get this piece of the puzzle either, is like your change champions are the people who want the change. Like they're going to usher things in, whereas your internal influencers may need some bribing, just like if you're on social media and you have to convince an influencer to market your brand. But they're the people who have all the charisma and people want to work with and want to learn from and like are inspired by. And you need, you do, you need those people. You just need them. Yeah, in a really good way to, like, get those people on board that's, like, a win-win is yeah. pilots. Yes, yeah. And what cool, right, recognition. I don't know if that gets talked about enough, but mm. that's a big piece of social learning, too. And not just, like, recognizing people when they're doing something that's wrong, but, like, recognizing um, and celebrating when people are doing good things and exciting things and are change leaders in your organization. Yeah, or just celebrating what they're learning, that too. Yeah. Right. Like what a better way to build a learning culture than to be like, Hey, this group of people who work here is learning this thing and it's awesome. They went through the pilot and they are now experts in X. Go talk to them. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah, they piloted our new certification and now they're all the first ones certified under X program. Right. Like, yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. (laughs) <laughs> okay, so I have one last question for you. Sure. If you had to recommend one resource, it can be anything, on social learning specifically, what would it be and why? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> okay, I'm going to take it out of the box a little bit. but Let's do um, it. I really like a book, Contagious, by Jonah Berger, and it's a book about how things go viral, and not just, like, you know, internet campaign viral, but, like, it talks about Kit Kat and how they made money when they were, like, way down and stuff like that with a radio ad. Um, I won't give too many spoilers away, so you can find out how that happened, but for me... That was really interesting because social learning does, you know, creating digital social learning experiences or even face-to-face ones, it does require you to 
think a little bit like um, a marketer and a little sure. bit like a game sure. designer sometimes, you know, like uh, that's how you get people to play it, essentially. Yeah, so for me, just hearing some of the ways that teams have done that and how they've created, I always say, you know, you're creating movements when you are doing good social learning, right? You're getting people to, to like want to be part of a, um, um, a movement, right? Building moments yeah. that make them feel like that. So knowing how people come to think about things or how things stick, I think that's, that's a good way to, to start. Um, Great. There's a ton of social learning stuff out there that is more formal and wonderful, but like, yeah. you know, that's but the this one is that a I great recommendation. Say. Yeah. I like to get outside L and D sometimes. <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, thank you for coming on the show. It was great chatting with you. It was great chatting with you too, Heidi. It's always fun when we can get together. Thanks again for joining me on the blog. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and review us on your favorite podcast platform. I hope you'll tune in again soon.